The day Jesus was baptized, it was probably like just any other day at the Jordan River. For weeks, the crowds had been pe- crowds of people had been coming out to John the Baptist, who was preaching a baptism, a repentance for the forgiveness of their sins. And as that as a pastor who has baptized people and and planned those those events, and I've even had the privilege of baptizing some folks in the Jordan River. And, and in case you're wondering, uh, the water was cold and the water was swift, and so it reminded me a whole lot of the rivers in Idaho. But when it comes to baptism, I wonder about the logistics of the whole thing. How did John and his disciples handle the large crowds? Did did the people form a line and wait patiently and take their turn to be baptized? Or did John call out their names and, and say, next? Uh, did they pack together on the, the river bank, anxiously awaiting for their their turn to be baptized? Did the disciples of John organize the crowds in any way, or was it like, as somebody said, just herding cats? <laughs> were the people vocally confessing their sins as they were coming into the waters to be baptized? Did, did John give an invitation after he was through preaching, like we often do today? And the Gospels give us very few details about this. John, or Luke's Gospel, just has two verses. But however it worked, when Jesus came to be baptized, he would have gone mostly unnoticed and easily lost in the crowd if it weren't for the events that the gospel writers do tell us. Jesus would have come and been baptized like everyone else, left just like everybody else, just another face in the crowd. So please turn to Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. In the third chapter of Luke, he gives us really what's a very sketchy description of the baptism of Jesus. Luke gives us few details, but what he does tell us and what the other gospels fill in from their brief accounts, announced to the multitude that was there that day that the long-awaited Messiah had come, and Jesus is the Messiah. Verse 21 of Luke chapter 3. Now when all the people were baptized, Jesus also was baptized, And while he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form, like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. Shall we pray? Fathers, we come to this very important and crucial passage of Scripture this morning that uh, began the earthly ministry of Jesus and confirmed that he was God's Messiah who came to save us from our sins. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would come upon us and in us this morning in a way that will open up our hearts and our minds to all that that means to us as believers in Jesus Christ and to those who do not yet know Christ, Father. May you draw them to yourself. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin, so it raises the question, why would Jesus be baptized? Jesus was sinless. He didn't need to repent. Why would he come to John and be baptized? He had no need of repentance and the rite of baptism that went along with it. So to answer that question, we must turn to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. In the third chapter of of the Gospel of Matthew, 
Matthew tells us about that day that Jesus came to be baptized. Uh, verse 13 of Matthew chapter 3. It says, Then Jesus arose from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. So Jesus came to John, he got down, came down in the water to be baptized, and John tried to prevent him. John's thinking was probably something like this. You're the son of the Most High God. You're not alienated from God. You're the sinless one. You're the holy child. That's what the angel Gabriel told your mother. You are holy. And John would say, I'm not. You have no sin. But I'm a sinner. Why don't you baptize me? You don't need this baptism. But Jesus responded to John, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. All righteousness. You see, Jesus was utterly righteous. The Apostle Paul called him our righteousness. You see, Jesus had fulfilled all manner of righteousness from his youth up. Moral righteousness. He never did anything that was immoral. He fulfilled legal righteousness. He never broke the law of God. He obeyed every commandment. Jesus fulfilled spiritual righteousness. He was sinless. And in one respect, John was right. He had no need to undergo John's baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But he did. Why? It was because Jesus was the embodiment of righteousness. Jesus purposefully identified with the righteous actions of his people. He did not come to repent of his own sins, of which he had none. He came to make himself one, as it were, to make himself one with those who did submit to baptism in order to fulfill all that the law required. You see, the point is, John had been sent by God to baptize in water. That's very important. God wanted people baptized by John. That was God's command. In obedience to God, that's what righteous people were to do, to be baptized by John. That's what God asked of righteous people at the time. Right. And so Jesus wanted it done. Listen carefully. Why? Because Jesus needed to fulfill all righteousness. And what this is saying simply is that whatever God required, whatever God required, Jesus did. Because Jesus would live a life of perfect righteousness. There'd be no sins of commission. He'd commit no sin. He would never do what he shouldn't have done. And there'd be no sins of omission. He would never fail to do what righteous people do. So let me give you an example of what righteous people did at the time of Jesus. Righteous people celebrated the Passover. They kept the Passover in obedience to God. Did Jesus go to the Passover? Yes, he did. Many times. Did he take of the Passover meal? Many times. Did Jesus need to participate in a meal that commemorated God's deliverance from Egypt and that looked forward to the expiation of sin by the final Lamb of God who would come and take away the sins of the world? No, Jesus didn't, know to, didn't need to do that. 
Did Jesus have to partake of a Passover meal as a testimony to his need to be delivered from sin? No. But righteous people kept the Passover because God instituted it. Righteous people in Jesus' day kept the Passover. So that's what Jesus did. Righteous people obeyed God by being baptized by John. So that's what Jesus did. And I could add this point, what do righteous people do today who have come to Jesus Christ in obedience to Christ? They are baptized in water today for the forgiveness of their sins. So that's another thing that today, that's what righteous people do, who are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus because they have received Christ. But in, in Jesus' day, righteous people obeyed God by being baptized by John. So that's what Jesus did. Once John understood this, he acquiesced to, to Jesus' request to be baptized. And so Jesus, outwardly appearing no different from the multitude around him, was baptized by John in the Jordan River. Now from the crowd's point of view, it'd be like any other of the baptisms that day. Maybe some knew Jesus as the carpenter, the carpenter's son. From, but their perspective, it was a routine baptism like everybody else who was coming down to be baptized by John. But God was going to see to it that it was not routine. So Jesus was baptized, first of all, in order to fulfill all righteousness. And secondly, in order to be confirmed that he is the Messiah. To confirm him as the divine Son of God. It's significant that while all this was happening, Jesus was praying. While John was putting Jesus down into the water and bringing him up, Jesus is in perfect, holy conversation with the Father. John the Baptist and any other onlookers who were watching that day observed Jesus in prayer, in an attitude of adoration and, and submission and dependence upon the Father in prayer. And according to verses 21 and 22 of Luke chapter 3, three things happen. First of all, heaven was opened. Secondly, the Holy Spirit descended like a dove. And then a voice came out of heaven. So first of all, heaven opens. Verse 21 again in Luke's gospel, chapter 3. Now when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized, and while he was praying, heaven was opened. Now the prophet Isaiah had prayed to God, oh, that you would rent or tear the heavens and come down. Oh, that you would open up the heavens, Lord, and you would come down to us. Well, that actually happened at Jesus' baptism. You might remember if you saw the movie The Ten Commandments, how Cecil B. DeMille divided the Red Sea and the Ten Commandments. And, you know, in the 50s, boy, that was a tremendous thing to watch and see, even in a movie. And I wonder how he would portray or how modern technology would portray the, the opening of the skies above the Jordan River. What could be seen beyond the heavens? What did they see? Well, we have some things in Scripture. The prophet Ezekiel said the heavens were open. And he saw visions of God. He saw visions of God. Jesus told his disciples that one day they would see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That's talking about the second coming. 
As Stephen was being martyred and stoned to death, he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Here the multitudes who saw the heavens open when Jesus was baptized must have been absolutely stunned, awestruck. With their eyes fixed and focused upward to the torn sky, the multitudes watched as the Holy Spirit came down like a dove. Verse 22, And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. The Holy Spirit made a visual, physical descent. And Matthew gives us Jesus' perspective. He tells us what Jesus saw. Matthew writes, The heavens were open, and Jesus saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting upon him. The Gospel of John tells us what John the Baptist saw. It says John 1, in one thirty-two, John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and it remained upon him. That is him, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so coming from the expanse of the sundered sky, the Holy Spirit flooded down like a dove on bodily wings and lighting upon Jesus, signifying that the Holy Spirit had come upon him and would never depart from him. Now this doesn't mean that the Lord didn't have or didn't know the Holy Spirit up until this point. Of course he did. Jesus was a member of the Holy Trinity. They were in eternal communion. He was in full communion with the Holy Spirit all the time. This is not Christ without the Holy Spirit getting the Holy Spirit. This is not like a non-believer becoming converted and believing in Jesus Christ and trusting in Him and receiving the Holy Spirit at the moment of conversion and being baptized in the Holy Spirit. It's not that kind. This is, with Jesus, an anointing for special service, an anointing for special service, and an anointing for special power. This is to demonstrate that God has put His power on an individual in a way that all can see. Of course, Jesus as God already had limitless power. He was in perfect concert with the Father because he was doing the Father's will. That's what he said he always did. I only came to do the will of the Father. He was in perfect harmony with the Holy Spirit at all times because he had in his humanness yielded himself up to the operation of the power of the Holy Spirit. This is simply heaven saying at this point, here is the official anointing of power on Jesus as the true Messiah and Savior. Certainly the Holy Spirit had been in perfect communion with Jesus for all the 30 years of his life. There was never any time when he wasn't in perfect harmony and communion with the Holy Spirit. But now there's an official anointing, an official empowering for the duties of that were his as the Messiah. We see Old Testament parallels to this. For example, the Holy Spirit came upon Moses for the duty that God had called him to do. The Holy Spirit came upon Joshua and the 70 elders before they went into the Promised Land. The Holy Spirit became upon Gideon and Samson. The Holy Spirit came upon David and Elijah and upon Ezekiel and Daniel for their prophetic ministry. So this is a special anointing of power from the Holy Spirit connected to ministry. 
And those of you who have ever been ordained or commissioned as a missionary or a pastor, you know exactly what I'm talking about here. When other pastors and elders and missionaries lay hands on you and pray, there's a special anointing of the Holy Spirit for ministry. And we are called in the New Testament to do that, to lay hands on people and pray as they begin their specific ministries. But in the case of Jesus, there had never been anything like this in biblical history. Never. Never had the Spirit at this point in time, never had the Spirit come down and not depart. And never had a dove been used to symbolize the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist, you'll remember, spoke of Jesus baptizing with the Holy Spirit and fire. That is, with purging and judgment, with fire. But here the Holy Spirit is coming down as a dove. And it gives a whole other side to the ministry of Jesus. You see, the gentleness of a dove suited the temper of Jesus' ministry very well. Jesus' ministry on this earth would be a ministry of reconciliation reconciling God with sinners. So there's a tenderness. There's a love. There's a gentleness in Jesus calling sinners to himself. I like the way that Thomas Goodwin, the great Puritan theologian, explained the significance of the dove. He says, All apparitions of God, that is an apparition like coming in a bodily form like a dove, All apparitions of God, that God at any time made of himself, were not so much made to show men what God is in himself as it is to show us, to show us how he is affected toward us and declare what effects he will work in us. He continues, For a dove, you know, is the most meek and the most innocent of all birds, without gall, without talons, having no fierceness in it, expressing nothing but love and friendship to its mate in all its carriages, and mourning over its mate in all its distresses. And accordingly, a dove was a most fit emblem of the Spirit who was poured out upon our Savior when he was just about to enter on the work of our salvation. For as sweetly as doves do converse converse with doves, so may every sinner and Christ converse with together. To be sure, Jesus was and is a lion. He's the lion of Judah. His divine anger scorched the Pharisees, and he will return one day as a warrior to judge the earth. But nevertheless, his earthly ministry was characteristically gentle. You'll remember the words he said in Matthew, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, For I am what? Gentle and humble in heart. I am gentle, and you will find rest for your souls. He pronounced the beatitude, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And he exhorted us all to be innocent as doves. He exhorted us to be innocent as doves. And so the first two manifestations of of Jesus' baptism were visual, Heaven opened and the Holy Spirit descended like a dove. The next confirmation was verbal. The Father spoke. Verse 22 of Luke chapter 3. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice 
came out of heaven. You are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. In the, the 18th Psalm, the voice of God is described as a thunderclap that comes out of the clouds. And you might remember at the Mount of Transfiguration when Peter, James, and John witnessed the Lord glorified and standing there in all his glory with Elijah and, and Moses. The Father thundered, This is my Son, my Chosen One. Listen to Him. The Lord's voice must have been much the same here. Heaven was open. The Holy Spirit descended as a dove and the Father's voice thundered, You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And in those brief words, the Father referenced two scripture passages. You are my Son is a reference to the seventh verse of the second Psalm, which points to the coming Messiah, the Messiah. And whom I am well pleased is a reference to Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. And so the first reference from the second Psalm is the basis for Christ reigning Messiahship, his authority, his kingly reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. And the second reference from Isaiah is an allusion to Jesus' suffering Messiahship, his suffering Messiahship. So to see Christ reigning Messiahship, let's turn to Psalm 2, verse 7. The second Psalm at the seventh verse. As the beloved Son, Jesus enjoyed a unique relationship with the Father. He possessed the authority, he possessed the power that came from the Father. And, and Psalm 2 anticipates and looks to the reign of the Lord's anointed. That's what the word of Messiah means in, in Hebrew. Uh, Christ means the anointed one in, in, in Greek. The Lord's anointed, the one anointed of God, his, his Messiah. And this is the description of the reign, the sovereign reign of the Messiah when he comes. Verse 7 of Psalm 2. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. And he said to me, talking about the anointed one, he said to me, that God said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As of me, and I will surely give the nation, or ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way. Now as a dove, Jesus' ministry was gentle. And as the eternal incarnate Son, he's uniquely related to the Father. But because he is King and kings and Lord of lords, the anointed of God, his iron scepter will crush the raging nations. So there's a warning in verse 12. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry, and you perish in the way. Now the word translated there, do homage, literally means to kiss. Kiss the Son. The idea is kiss the sun so you will not be taken out. <laughs> what does that mean? 
Well, we see this in the, in the New Testament because the most common word in the New Testament that is translated worship, prokoskaneo, literally means, we translate it worship, but it literally means to kiss at. To kiss at. When the Magi found the baby who had been born king of the Jews and fell to the ground and worshipped him, literally, they fell to the ground and kissed at him. You see, in those days, when somebody came into the province of a sovereign, and picture going into the throne room or whatever it is, or, or in the presence of, of a king, you would literally bow down and kiss at his feet. Or in the case of the Messiah, like the Magi, fall down and worship him. You see, those who do not fall down and worship Christ, the psalmist says, will perish. So why Psalm 2 is a reference to Christ's reigning Messiahship, where he will rule with a rod of iron, Isaiah chapter 42 is a reference to Christ's suffering Messiahship. We begin to see the suffering of Christ. So please turn to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 42, and we'll just be reading the first verse here. When the Father says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, and whom I am well pleased is an allusion or a reference to verse 1 of Psalm 42. And speaking of the Messiah, the Lord's servant, God says, verse 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, my anointed one, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights, delights. I have put my spirit upon him. God the Father delights in his chosen one, his Messiah. So what is it about Christ that the Father delights? Why is he well pleased? Well, there are two reasons that the Father is well pleased and has delight in the Son. First of all, the Father is pleased in retrospect, that is, in looking back on Jesus' life before his baptism. The Father is pleased with Jesus' humble incarnation, that is, coming to this earth and taking on human flesh. And so we see this in Philippians chapter 2. If you'd like to turn over to Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, at the fifth verse. Here we see how the eternal Son of God took on the form of a bond slave, a servant when he took on flesh, when he became human flesh. The fifth verse of Philippians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul wrote, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Have this attitude. And the attitude is, Christ Jesus had it. We should have the same attitude, because this is the attitude that pleases God. This is why God was well pleased in the Son who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. The Son of God was God of very God, co-equal and co-eternal with the Father and the Holy Spirit from all eternity. Go back in your mind to all eternity past, as far as you can go back, and there is God, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in perfect communion together. But although he was God, when Jesus became flesh, he did not hold on to that. Verse 7, but he emptied himself. 
he emptied himself, not that he was God, he remained God, but he emptied himself of the characteristics or the attributions of God that would normally be seen. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. This was well-pleasing to the Father. And Jesus' earthly life was well-pleasing to the Father. Before coming to John for baptism, the Son had lived in humble circumstances in the seclusion of Nazareth, where in prayer and communion with his heavenly Father and with the Holy Spirit, he grew in comprehension of who he is and what he had come to do. And this well pleased the Father. And then verse 8 of Philippians chapter 2 hits at the other reason. The Father is well pleased with the Son. Verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by what? Becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, at Jesus' baptism, the Father is well pleased in retrospect, but he's also well pleased in prospect. The Father is well pleased at the prospect of the Son's suffering atonement on the cross, dying for our sins, paying the penalty for our sins, that we who believe in him might spend eternity with God in fellowship with God, in communion with God for all eternity. And this is well-pleasing to the Father. In recounting the sufferings of the Messiah, Isaiah chapter 53, doesn't you don't need to turn to it at this point, but it makes a, a startling statement. Speaking of Jesus' death on the cross on our behalf, Isaiah 53.10 says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. The Lord was pleased to crush his son to accomplish our salvation. The entire Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were pleased at the salvation Jesus Christ would accomplish on the cross. They were well pleased at Jesus' baptism. It was the second man of the Trinity, the triune God, who came up out of the waters in fervent prayer. It was a third person of the Trinity who descended in bodily form like a dove. And it was the first person of the Trinity who thundered, You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The Holy Trinity, God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, rejoiced at the Jordan River as they commenced and celebrated the beginning of the official ministry of our Savior Jesus Christ. I want to close this morning by reading the entire 53rd chapter of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53, if you have titles in your Bible, which you probably do, it simply says, The Suffering Servant. Isaiah prophesied this 800 years before Jesus came into this world, and it's a detailed description of Jesus dying on the cross. In prospect of Jesus at Jesus' baptism, 
This is why the Father was well pleased. Isaiah chapter 53. And who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And speaking of Christ, the Messiah, for he grew up before him, before the Lord, like a tender shoot, and like a root out of a parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hid their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, and we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was trushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, for he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for generations who considered that he was cut out, cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due, his grave was assigned with wicked men, and he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and will be satisfied, and by his knowledge the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, for he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will lot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, as we come before you now in prayer, Father, I pray as your Holy Spirit works and you've opened up to us what it means that Jesus died for our sins on the cross. What it meant for Jesus, what it meant for God the Father, and what it means for us, Father. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work right now, drawing us closer to you. If there's something that we need to confess and make it right with you, Father, I pray that we would do that right now. Father, if there's one who has never received Jesus Christ as Savior and never understood this, but your Holy Spirit has, has brought this to, to meaning today, Lord, so that they see their need to confess their sins and receive Jesus Christ as their Savior for the forgiveness of their sins, Father, I pray that they would have the faith right now, Lord, to trust in you. Father, I thank you for our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ that even from the foundation before the foundation of the world, it was in the mind of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that Jesus would come and die for our sins 
And that was in their mind even before they created us. Father, what marvelous love. Father, I thank you for this. And I thank you that in Jesus, we have a relationship and fellowship with you, which will last for all eternity and will last for all eternity with all who have a relationship with you through Jesus Christ. And for this, we give you praise and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.